Welcome to the Backyard Professor videos on Mormonism, science, philosophy, archaeology, mathematics, whatever subject interests us. At Sunstone, here a couple of weeks ago, I gave a summary, a brief summary, of my paper that I wrote on the Heavenly Mother. And today I would like to elaborate more and give you the actual materials in that paper and express one of the greatest subjects, I think, that's on our planet. Uh, this subject is, it caught me from the very beginning. It's a magnificent subject. And so what I would like to do is give you the full kip and caboodle with this terrific subject. There's enough materials on this subject just within the scriptures to make 20 videos on, but this will be the anchor video. This will be the one where I set the stage for further videos if you're interested. Gordon B. Hinckley, former president of the church at a woman's conference, I can't remember which one, but he was talking to the sisters and he said, we don't pray to our Heavenly Mother and to do so probably will lead you into apostasy which I personally think is utterly ludicrous, but here we are. <laughs> the reason he said that we don't pray to Heavenly Mother is because I can't find her anywhere prayed to in the scriptures. And so therefore, since it's not scriptural, we should not do that. I have discovered that Gordon B. Hinckley was just wrong. Now, when I said that in my Sunstone paper, that elicited quite a few comments. They were somewhat surprised that I would challenge the president of the church, but I'm going to reiterate that challenge now. I know Gordon B. Hinckley was wrong. He was looking in the correct book, the Bible. He was also looking in the wrong language. He was reading it in the English. I'm going to show you that we can pray to Heavenly Mother in the scriptures using the Hebrew and by analyzing the Bible in its Hebrew language rather than an English translation which has always been done by men anyway we're gonna find out that Heavenly Mother was not a secondary deity that she is not a lesser or unimportant pagan deity she is one of the main deities. Unfortunately, patriarchy has tried to downplay her, in some instances, completely obliterate her. But we've got the Hebrew to turn to, and that is what I'm going to do now. The goddess is an enigma, a mystery, and a marvelous work and wonder. As I study the scriptures in the Hebrew, I find even more deepening and fascinating views of her. She is the Alma, the hidden one, though right in plain sight in our scriptures. It just depends on which language we read. Do you read the English translation which loses her, or rather hides her from us? Or do you read the scriptures in their languages they were written, the Hebrew and the Greek, 
where she has been all along and where we find her in her fullest glory. Too much information is lost in translation, as I will demonstrate. And the incredible thing is, she is right there in the very first part of the Bible. When we read in Genesis 1 and 2, Ve ha'aretz ha'ita tohu vabohu, the hoshech al pene tohom, ve ruach Elohim merach hefet al pene hamayim. That translates the earth was void and formless, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the spirit was hovering over the waters. That spirit was Heavenly Mother. She is identified not only in the Jewish Kabbalah, but in the Hebrew text as well. And the reason that that is so is because the Veruach Elohim is the feminine noun. The Ruach, the spirit, the wind, the breath of God, the life of God, the substance that is breathed into Adam and Eve as the Spirit of God is equated with the Heavenly Mother. And the Hebrew word Merach Hefet, the Ruach Elohim Merach Hefet, is brooding over the waters. She's hovering, brooding, soft, gentle. She's incubating the waters to bring forth life because in many, many ancient traditions, it is the universe that is born from the mother. And the Hebrew is alluding to this fact. In Genesis 1.27, So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. The word for God used here is Elohim. It is the masculine plural. You can tell by the ending of im in Hebrew. That's how they depict the masculine plural. There's all kinds of interesting interpretations of this word Elohim. It can be a plural of gods. It can also mean the great majesty of God, the overwhelming abundant power and grace and love of God can be translated with this Elohim. However, in the strongest Strong's Concordance by Kohlenberger and Swanson, we find under this definition number four, it can also mean the goddess. Now this is remarkable. I do believe this is one of the only concordances who acknowledges that. So where in the Bible have we ever seen the word Elohim translated as goddess? We don't. The translations have always been put in the masculine as a male. And there are reasons for this, and that is part of the reason why I want to do this video, is because the translation is destroying all the clues to mom. And I say mom affectionately and with reverence, not rudely. She's also called Mumu in ancient times, the mother, the great mother, the goddess. 
She, she goes by many names and many epithets because she is not a second-rate apostate pagan deity at all. She was worshipped in ancient Israel, and in fact, in Solomon's temple, she was worshipped as the Queen of Heaven. It is in the image of God, as we follow in Genesis, that both male and female persons are made. Both have to be considered and understood within the context of the Hebrew semantics, the word usage. Because the Hebrew reads, Zakar unakeva bara otam. The otam, them, is the third person plural in Hebrew. God created the et ha adam, that is, mankind, man and woman here. And then there's an interesting play of words on Adam and Adama, the ground from which man and woman was made. So is this image of God, and the Hebrew word here is for Zelim, and this is a replica, a likeness, etc. Is it supposed to be male and female? Yes, indeed. In Hebrew, there's no doubt about it. The Hebrew is clear on this. God's image is both the male and the female. And there is more here than meets the eye, without question. If Elohim is plural, then what is the singular? It is El. El is the masculine singular. And this is a relationship, of course, to the Kamanite El, the early deity way back in the Bronze Age. Actually, I think it's in the Iron One in the uh, 12 to 1100s where the Canaanite deity El is well known. And Elohim is the Hebrew uh, adjustment, I'll put it that way, of that particular deity. So, if God is both male and female, then what is the singular feminine supposed to be? That would be Eloah. Elohim, with the im ending, is the plural, means the gods, it can also mean the goddess. The singular is the feminine Eloah. It has the feminine ending of ah, and all Hebrew grammars describe this ending as being feminine. Jesenius in his grammar describes how the example used here of the vorlage in the Hebrew, the Genesis 1.27, and this is also at Genesis 32.1, the masculine gender is used in conjunction with and including the feminine gender. The very ancient Semitic mindset made the masculine prevail over the feminine gender. Originally, it didn't exclude the feminine, it subordinated it. These were the ancient translators, the ancient Hebrew translators who did this, with the idea that the masculine aspect is involved with notions such as dangerous, savage, courageous, respected, great, while the feminine aspect involved motherly, productive, sustaining, nourishing, gentleness, etc. That's in his grammar on page 391, 122G, the paragraph, and footnote 2. This is especially important to realize as we explore below the scriptural ideas of nourishing, nourishment, 
birthing and other motherly aspects of God and this God in the scriptures I will explore is written in the Hebrew as Eloah, the goddess, as Strong's strongest concordance indicates, but they translate it as the male. This is where they're hiding the ancient mother, because Eloah is definitely the feminine. It lacks the masculine suffix of im found in Elohim, and yet none of the concordances translate this as goddess, which is so odd, isn't it? It really is. Elohim, the compound of the feminine singular Eloah, with the masculine suffix plural im, is translated as God, and the pronouns associated with God are most often rendered as masculine, which is, in many instances, the feminine would have been more appropriate. In fact, the feminine of El is Elah, which most interestingly is used in the Bible in places where the mother goddess was worshipped, and she was understood to be in the oaks, the trees of the Asherah in the first temple period of Judah. The word oak in Hebrew is Elah, the feminine of El. Isn't that interesting? And this is the terebinth tree. The tree being the most significant symbol of the goddess in the ancient Near East and in the Bible especially, but we lose that in our translations. I believe this is the most singular important problem with Bible translations and the word and in the implied meanings of the goddess is deliberately translated wrongly. Every Bible translator knows the difference between the masculine aspects of the Hebrew and its feminine aspects, and they refuse to translate the feminine aspects in their translations. So we're going to explore some very interesting verses in the Hebrew to show how we lose the female goddess. The Mormon idea of believing the Bible as far as it is translated correctly is right on here because the facts dictate that the most important word, the most important concept in the entire history of mankind, that of God of course, has most definitely been mistranslated in the Bible and is fundamentally misunderstood. God is certainly a he, but God is also a she. They are both found throughout the Hebrew Bible in literally hundreds of places. Eloah appears in the Old Testament Hebrew some 57 times. It's by far the most important used in the book of Job. In conjunction with Eloah, the mother, is the name El Shaddai, which is also mostly used, interestingly, in Job. So, in fact, of the 48 times that El Shaddai is mentioned in the Bible, 31 of them are in Job. The feminine imagery in Job 38.8 is exquisite. Or who had shut up the sea with the doors when it break forth? And the Hebrew word here means leapt tumultuously or burst forth energetically as if it issued from the womb. Yahweh also asked rhetorically in Job 38.29, out of whose womb came the ice? Job asks rhetorically at 38.29, out of whose womb 
tamed the ice. These are feminine characteristics we're reading about here. And what's more, they are the feminine characteristics of the goddess Eloa. That's the name being used here, since Job describes her further in other places. Job 11.5 laments, Oh, that God would speak. The name here is Eloa, the goddess. The next verse is a desire for goddess Eloa to show the secrets of wisdom. The veyageh lekta alumot chokmah is how the Hebrew reads it. The Hebrew ta'alumot is the feminine noun in the plural construct, while the chokmah is, of course, the singular feminine noun for wisdom, and this feminine name is one of the names of the goddess wisdom as well. Especially in the Proverbs and the Wisdom of Solomon, and in Sirach, as well as later Kabbalistic Jewish esoteric interpretations. Wisdom is one of the names of Heavenly Mother. Yes, it's an attribute of God, to be sure, without question, but it is also one of her sacred name as understood by the ancients. Notice the remainder of this verse 6. This shows a mother's mercy. Oh, this is beautiful how this shows us. That they, the secrets of wisdom, this is what the verse is talking about, that they are double to that which is, so the secrets are greater than we can expect or even know. They're double to what we think we know, right? Know therefore that God, Eloah, the goddess, exacteth of thee less than thine iniquity deserveth. Oh, that's beautiful. See, there's no eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth here when it comes with mom. There is just a loving, tender mercy with less punishment and ignorance that is deserved. And this is a very motherly trait. Ah, the time of the bell. That's perfect, right when we're talking about the mercy of mom, the heavenly mercy, the bells toll. That's nice. Notice even further in verse 7 here, continues with more information on the goddess, Job 11.7 now. Canst thou by searching find out God? The Hebrew here is Eloah. Canst thou find out the El Almighty? The almighty name here is El Shaddai, unto perfection. So it, here is how we can translate this out of the Hebrew. Canst thou by searching find out mother? Canst thou find out the extent and limits of our divine mother? Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> That's awesome. When we read it in the Hebrew of Eloah and El Shaddai, another very fabulous ancient name for the Great Mother. And I'll explain that here in just a moment. The Hebrew word here for find out in Canst Thou Find Out Heavenly Mother is taklith. It is the feminine singular construct. 
The Halota lexicon, the Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, indicates that the Neopunic word also means the outermost or the furthest parts. This description of Eloah and Shaddai are synonymously used in many places in Job and the Hebrew scriptures indicates the majesty, the power of the goddess. She is described as almighty. The Hebrew is El Shaddai, which can be translated as the many-breasted God or the God with breasts, because the Hebrew word shod means breast. Now there are biblical scholars who will argue about this, but that's one of the viable translations. That's according to the Jesenius lexicon. Shod can also mean foist sein, which means to moisten, according to the Kohler and Baumgartner bilingual dictionary of the Hebrew and Aramaic. The unfathomable and the limitless deity here is contrasted, interestingly enough, from Proverbs in Mesopotamia. And the idea of this contrast between the deity and the human in the Mesopotamian texts demonstrates the human limitations. And here's how this proverb goes. The tallest man cannot reach heaven. The widest man cannot cover the mountains. The immortal deity then asks, who, my friend, can scale heaven? This is the idea of the contrast between what's powerful, man, and what's almighty, which is translated as El Shaddai in the Hebrew Bible. And that is Heavenly Mother in the book of Job. She is the goddess over the whole earth. She's the goddess of the rivers, of the rocks, of the flowers. Everything in nature belongs to the mother because she gave birth to it. The original creation theology was that father and mother came together and gave birth to the universe, gave birth to the animals, gave birth to the plants, the mountains, the rocks. All things on earth is birthed, created, formed, organized. And perhaps one of the most startling things we learn about El Shaddai is that this goddess, this goddess that is translated as the Almighty, was known to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, before she was known as Yahweh. Now this is remarkable. Exodus 6.3 says this plainly in the Hebrew. In verse 2, God said that he was Yahweh. And in verse 3, God was known as El Shaddai. The Hebrew word used for appeared here is the English translation of Era, from the root Ra'ah. And this means more than just see, it means to understand, to realize, to grasp intellectually and in your heart who someone is. 
according to the Halot lexicon, it means a lot more than simply seeing God to understand what and how God is. In this case, that God is the mother. Shaddai, the breasted one. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the mother Shaddai. This is stunning since the assumption has always been that this God was always male, but she was known as the mother before she became known as Yahweh through her son. And Yahweh was the son of El, true story, in the Canaanite pantheon of the deities. So in conjunction with this, we read in Psalm 114.7 that the earth trembles at the presence of the God of Jacob and here the word is Eloah Yaakov, Eloah the mother goddess. Here she is again. So this is another translation of Exodus 6.3 would be proper. And I appeared unto Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by my name of the breasted goddess El Shaddai, but by my name Jehovah I was not known to them. That Shaddai means the breasted one is a possible translation and interpretation. It's seen in the parallelism in Jacob's blessing in Genesis 49, 25 and 26, where she is mentioned as well as the blessings of being in the womb, the breasts, the family, the father and the mother and the child. This is in David Noel Friedman and Frank Moorcross Jr.'s book, Studies in Ancient Yahwist Poetry. The blessings of Jacob also mentions the blessings of the deep. The deep in the Hebrew is the word tehom, of which perhaps the goddess Tiamat is found, is derived. The tehom is the deep, and this symbolizes the female womb of the mother of creation. At Ebla, the word is tiamatum, or tumtum, tiamtum. Tomb, etc., meaning the deep, the womb of creation. This is what the Spirit of God was Merach Hefet, hovering over, was the creation after it was birthed in Genesis 1 and 2. An older treatment of Genesis 1 and 2 found a similarity between Tehom in Genesis and the Enuma Elish story in which Tiamat was vanquished by Marduk, and from her body earth and heaven were made. Genesis also reflects a fight in which the Spirit of God rushed on the chaos monster and thus made the ordered universe. Tiamat and Tahom come from the same root. The root referred to deep waters, and Hebrew used this root as well as a noun for water in the deep ocean and deep in the ground. But in the animistic thought of Akkadian, it became divinized into the goddess of the ocean, Tiamat. It's sometimes divinized as in the Akkadian. Theodore Mullen, in his dissertation, The Divine Council in Canaanite and Early Hebrew Literature, noted that creation itself is not necessarily a battle against the sea, the deep in the Bible, so much as its containment. It is the restricting of the bounds of the sea that is what caused creation. A god or goddess can contain the boundless deep, but humans cannot. That is why El Shaddai is noted as being the Almighty, 
She is the boundless ocean, the ocean, the deep. We read womb is the ocean of life. It's interesting to note in Ulf's Oldenburg's dissertation, the conflict between El and Baal in Canaanite religion, that the battle of Yom, the sea, and the other gods is held back by two goddesses, and that Yam is considered male. And make no mistake about it, I know I'm in the minority here with this particular interpretation. There are some scholars of the Hebrew who are going to say this is pure bunk. There's other scholars in Hebrew who say this is exactly accurate. You have to follow the feminine and the masculine in the Hebrew. I mean, you've got Elohim, the masculine plural, and Eloah, the feminine plural. You've got uh, Ish and Isha. The Isha is woman, Ish is man. So you've got the man and the woman. You've got Sus for horse and Susa for the mare. So this is probably controversial. I recognize I'm in the minority and that doesn't bother me. So that's just the way that works. Continuing with Job 22:26, For then thou shalt have thy delight in the Almighty, El Shaddai, and shalt lift up thy face unto God, Eloah. The Hebrew translation is, For then shalt thou have thy delight in the breasted goddess, and shalt lift up thy face unto mother. It's interesting that these are the names of the goddess that are being talked about. Lift up your face to mother. In another verse, speaking of the hypocrite, Job is asked rhetorically, Will he delight himself in the Almighty, El Shaddai? Will he always call upon God, Eloah? Job 27.10 here again we have the goddess, and here again we have an interesting translation from the actual Hebrew. Will he delight himself with the breasted mother? Will he always call upon her? Amazing also is when we realize that Job understands that the goddess is going to be his judge. Job 31.6 Let me be weighed in an even balance. That's a good Egyptian touch, isn't it, from the Egyptian Book of the Dead? Let me be weighed in an even balance that God may know mine integrity. God, here is Eloah, the mother. Three times Eloah occurs in parallel with the Hebrew word tzur, which means rock. This is a descriptive term for God in Deuteronomy 32, 15, Psalm 18, 31, the Hebrew verse is 32 there, and Isaiah 44 and 8. Once it is found in context in which God is described as a shield to those who take refuge in him, Proverbs 30 verse 5, three times it's used in context as a terror for sinners. Psalm 50 22, Psalm 114 7, and Psalm 139 19. This would suggest that the term conveyed to God's people of comfort and assurance while conveying fear to their enemies. 
And isn't this how a mother would be with her children, yeah? A source of comfort. See, we have these concepts of strength and might conveyed by Eloah, the Heavenly Mother. These are further seen in three successive verses in Daniel's vision of the great foreign god, Daniel 11, 37 through 39. So here the foreign god's god is Eloah, and she seems to be equated with strength. In Habakkuk 1 and 11, the term is also similarly used. The theological word book of the Old Testament says this term for God, Eloah, was usually clearly used for Israel's God, the true God. This is evident from the fact that the Levites in the post-exilic period used the term in quoting the descriptive relation of God given in Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7, where the original revelation to Moses had used El and Yahweh in Nehemiah 9.17. In fact, Eloah here at Nehemiah we may find of the goddess's attributes for which the feminine is known. But thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, of great kindness, the, and forsooketh them not. This recalls when I noted in Jesenius's lexicon, didn't it? The idea of the Hebrew voyage of the feminine is involving aspects that are motherly, productive, sustaining, nourishing, gentle, etc. That's in the Jesenius grammar. So this really kind of fits interestingly when these feminine characteristics are brought out in the Hebrew. And perhaps the most stunning matter in the entire Old Testament of where we find this heavenly mother, this Eloah, is in Isaiah. In Isaiah's great argument for monotheism, in Isaiah 44, 8, we read, here is what Isaiah has the goddess Eloah saying. Fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have I, not, have I not told thee from that time, and have not declared it, even you are my witnesses? Is there a God beside me? No, there is not one. In the Hebrew of this great monotheistic chapter that Isaiah is used by all the Christians and even the Mormons to present a monotheism of there is only one true God, the actual translation from the Hebrew is, Fear ye not, be not afraid. Have not I told thee from that time, and have I declared it? Ye are even my witnesses. Is there a divine mother besides me? No, there is not one. This is the feminine Eloah that is used in Isaiah's great monotheism chapter. That is absolutely amazing, but she's been translated out. The actual name Eloah is also found in the Great Scroll of the Dead Sea Scrolls that was discovered in 1947. And it's in the manuscript that I've seen because I have the actual Hebrew manuscript and it is definitely Eloah, the Great Mother. 
The significance of that is the Dead Sea Scroll manuscript dates 1,000 years earlier than our medieval Masoretic text that our Hebrew Bible is based on from the Masoretes. In 1000 AD, this Isaiah scroll takes us way back further, closer to Isaiah than we used to be, and it's the same word for the Mother Goddess. The Mother is also, interestingly enough, associated and identified with the Holy Spirit. The Ruach HaKodesh. Interestingly, in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is associated with the second comforter, especially in John 14, 15, and 16. The idea and the role of comforting is found quite strong as mothering in Isaiah 66, 13. As one whom his mother comforteth, so will I comfort you, and ye shall be, find comfort in Jerusalem. This comforting, nourishing aspect is important in indicating the feminine goddess concept. And the PL verb stem, meaning nakhum, is to comfort or to be comforted, also found in the Nifael, the Pu'al, and the Hitpael. This Hebrew word is well known to every pious Jew living in exile because they recalled the opening words in Isaiah's Book of Consolation. And there we read, Nachamu, Nachamu, Ami. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. This is Isaiah 40 and 1. The same word occurs in Psalm 23, 4 where David says of the heavenly shepherd, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Notice, this is the famous 23rd Psalm. It's talking about heavenly mother. Very interesting. This is a mother might comfort her child. Isaiah 66, 13. But it is God who comforts his people. Psalm 71, 21. Here it is using the Hebrew word Elohim for deity. We also find the same concept of this comforting, this nurturing motherly aspect in Psalm 86, 17, Psalm 119, 82, Isaiah 12, 1, Isaiah 49, 13, Isaiah 52, 9. I mean, it's all over the place. This goddess feature. Yeah, this property of deity. More to the point, at Isaiah 11:2, the spirit of wisdom. Now here we're talking about the name of the goddess here, the spirit of wisdom. Her name is wisdom. The Ruach Chokmah. This is called the spirit of Yahweh. The Ruach Yahweh. Adonai is how the rabbis translate that. The noticeable, the noticeable thing here in this verse, it is understood that wisdom, Chokmah, is personified, is the female deity who goes by the name wisdom, is involved in the creation of the universe with God as God. The Shekinah is also a feminine aspect of deity. Strongly elaborated on in the Jewish Kabbalah and especially in the Jewish Zohar.
Yet the idea is also found in the Old Testament quite strongly because the word Shekinah means dwelling or the presence of God. Interestingly, the Mishkan, which is a form of the Hebrew Shakan, to dwell, well, this is the tabernacle that the Israelites set up in the wilderness with Moses. Shekinah is a feminine Hebrew noun, and Isaiah 51 uses this feminine Hebrew noun along with the feminine pronouns, particularly verses 9 and 10. And Isaiah 57, 15 says, the Shekinah inhabits, the Hebrew word here is shokane, the Shekinah shokane, she inhabits eternity, the high and lofty one, of course because she gave birth to the universe. She is the goddess. Gershom Scholem, in his magnificent book, The Mystical Shape of the Godhead, noted that Philo described the father, the creator of all, and the mother, the mother of all, and the son. This father is described as the husband of wisdom. She is the radiant emanation of the glory of God the Holy One, and the Holy One is one of the main epithets which Isaiah used to describe the goddess and the mother. The Hebrew kadosh, it is also used of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, which was sent to Israel during the Exodus to lead them. The pillar of fire by night and the pillar of smoke by day was the Shekinah, the Heavenly Mother, the wife of God. She it is who led Israel through the wilderness, according to Philo. Very interesting. It was this same spirit who was the mother in the Hebrew Scriptures which we've been exploring. The marriage of the father and the mother and the birth of their son, the Logos. This is discussed by Margaret Barker in her detail, The Great High Priest. In fact, when God said, let us make mankind in our image, it was the father talking to the mother, saying, hey, you and me, let's make mankind in our image, male and female. That is beautiful, isn't it? In the Gospel of the Hebrews, Jerome, one of the early church fathers, quotes the Gospel of the Hebrews, and he says that Jesus described the Holy Spirit as my mother. He says that Jesus described the Holy Spirit as my mother. So we actually see here the Spirit, the Ruach, the Mother, the Shekinah, Wisdom, the Holy One of Israel, Eloah, Elah, appearing in the scripture from the beginning, right at the creation, all the way up through into Jesus' day, at his baptism, the mother appeared and said, Thou art my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And she descended in the form of a dove. The dove is the holiest of the great mother's symbols. We hear the father's voice, the mother's voice, we see the mother symbol, and we see Jesus rising up in the water at his baptism. The beautiful family setting. 
So the question now becomes, how do we know if the goddess will reveal her wisdom to us? This is also quite scriptural. It's through prayer. The book of Job, as well as the internal linguistic usage of the Hebrew, throughout the Hebrew Bible, it's a very powerful and quite clear concept on this. You simply cannot gain this knowledge by reading the scriptures in a, an English translation, however. In the Hebrew, we see it very clearly from the book of Job. And this is concerning praying to Eloah, the Divine Mother. Job 31-35 says very clearly in the Hebrew, Tabi Shaddai Ya Aneni. My desire is that the Almighty, that is El Shaddai, the Breasted Mother, the Breasted Goddess, would answer me. The Hebrew word for Ana, answer, is really interesting to explore. Job says that the Divine Mother can and will answer him because that is his desire. He's obviously communicating with the Heavenly Mother in prayer, he says, for the analysis of the Hebrew, Anna, shows this. This idea, answering, implies a question asked, and this is what the Hebrew, Anna, is to answer that question. It's in the Middle Hebrew, it's in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it's in the Ugaritic, according to Cyrus Gordon in his textbook. The basic meaning is to turn around and face something. It's the various shades of meaning of answers are to reply. Oh man, this wind is horrible. Come on. The basic meaning is to reply, to answer your words. Long-winded information, like I'm doing in this video. <laughs> the second scripture in Job is equally as convincing that prayer to El Shaddai is perfectly normal. Truly. So, Job 6.8 says, Oh, that I might have my request and that God would grant me the thing that I long for. The Hebrew word here for my request, She'elaiti, from the She'elah, is extensive and essentially means a wish or a prayer to be answered. And that is what Job is longing for. But he is praying to Eloah and El. Shaddai, the Great Mother, Heavenly Mother. Job 33, 26. He shall pray unto God. Again, Eloah. That's the Hebrew here. The Divine Mother. And he will be favorable unto him, and he shall see his face with joy. For he will render unto man his righteousness. Isn't it fascinating that they put all of the masculine pronouns with the goddess? <laughs> this, was, this was realistically probably done anciently. Um, because anciently they 
stamped out the mother goddess from out of the first temple of Solomon, and that's a whole nother video, uh, or two or three, and that is a very important topic. It was for that reason that Babylon was able to come and destroy the temple, is because they apostatized from the true goddess. That's interesting. Yeah, I've got, I've got a lot of stuff on that I'll share with you. For he will render unto man his righteousness. The word pray in Hebrew here is atar. And there are some real interesting ranges of meanings with atar that I want to share with you. And this Hebrew word is somewhat unusual entry in the vocabulary for prayer. The Arabic cognate Atara means to slaughter for sacrifice, interestingly enough. Perhaps the Hebrew Atar has a sacrificial basis, basis von Rad and others in his Old Testament theology, and Ike wrote in his theology of the Old Testament, say this is a possibility in Exodus 8.28, and assisting the Hebrew verse here is 24 if you read the Hebrew, Atar is related to sacrifice. So, interestingly, in the Septuagint, and that's the Greek Old Testament, this word epakuo is to hear with favor. The word entreat, it means to make an earnest prayer or request, to beseech, to implore. So, important synonyms with this now include kanan in the Hitpael, to plead for grace. Another word is paga, to urge strongly. The palal in the hitpa'el verb stem means to pray, and sha'al means to ask or to make a request, and kala in the pl verb stem means to appease or to entreat. So, there's always uh, a need, a desire, on the prayer's part to the deity. And that's really interesting. To reply, to answer, in the absolute. Oh, let's see, this is the, I'll bet this is the one before. Yeah, it really is. I skipped a whole bunch of Hebrew here. Well, hold on. I can find this. Yeah, for anah. The Hebrew for anah is to reply, to answer. When we see it in the absolute, we, uh, and that's in Isaiah 65, 12, and Psalm 38, 16, and Job 16, 3, and Proverbs 15, 28, and so on and so forth. To reply to a greeting, uh, between people, the anas, to answer, to let someone know about something. So it, it is both applied to prayer between a human and a deity, and it applies to discourse between people. So, and I'm going to skip the idea of the legal action, to give evidence, to testify, to respond to what was said, to follow willingly, in the accusative of a person, it is to give a satisfactory answer, so on and so forth. So, 
boy, the Middle Hebrew. Now here in, here's interesting, in 1 Samuel 1.17, Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant thee thy petition that thou hast asked of him. The Hebrew, She Elatam, at Psalm 106.15, and this, this comes from the Hebrew uh, root, Sha'al, it means a request or to make a petition. It's a petitioning, a wish, or a prayer to come true. Right? And then Sha'al Shemin is to make a request to do something. Uh, the Ugaritic is Yeten Shel Shil to fulfill a request, so on and so forth. So a wish comes true. Job 6 8, of course is to comply to my request as well as to my plea. So this doctrine of prayer, as Icro attests, is remarkable for the element of freedom from any trace of hollow pathos or high-flown flattery. Rather, its marks are, and this is kind of interesting, it's a, uh, a childlike uh, simplicity, it's a sincerity, it's a confidence toward Yahweh. In Job's case, it's toward Eloah and El Shaddai in many instances, but it's also a prayer to Yahweh also. Biblical prayer is spontaneous, it's personal, it's motivated by need, and it's unconditioned by time or place. Now, uh, let me share this with you too, because this is quite important. Kind of a statistical thing. Of the 20 occurrences of this Hebrew word atar, to pray, eight are found in the theological contest of the plagues in Exodus. 8.10. And uh, the sacrifices related to the prayer of entreaty, such a relationship seems likely throughout this episode. Sacrificial acts are associated with the making of entreaty. In 2 Samuel 24.15, David offers burnt offerings, for instance, and peace offerings in order to stay the plague at the direction of the prophet Gad. So, so the, the idea of prayer and sacrifice and the entreating of the deity is certainly connected here in many, many, in many, many ways. The active forms of atar, I told you this, this word is extensive throughout the Hebrew Bible for prayer, entreaty, supplication. It is involved with sacrifices as well. In both the kal and the Hifil, verb stems in Hebrew, it has to do with prayer as it is given to Yahweh in earnest entreaty. The passive, the nifal, is used of the prayer as received with favor by Yahweh. The marvelous display of his grace and his condensation. This interplay of voice may be observed in Genesis 25-21. 
Here Isaac entreated Yahweh on behalf of his wife, for she was barren, and Yahweh was entreated of him. See, that's the nifal, the passive. Yahweh was entreated of him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. So we can see that it's a, it's a vertical uh, communication, right? It means promise in other examples. The force of the verb in a passage pointed to Yahweh's promise to David, for instance, um, for the perpetual dynasty, 2 Kings 8.19. The promise to Israel to possess the land of promise, etc., It means to say, as in a current saying. So anyway, this is a this is a very, very important, well-used verb, both horizontally between people and vertically between humanity and deity. That's the idea. So that when it's used with Job, with the Heavenly Mother, that's exactly what we're talking about. The vertical prayer. And she responds to him, and he entreats her in prayer. Definitely. That is fundamentally scriptural. So let's move on to Job 10.2. Here I will say, Amar unto God, or Omer unto God, do not condemn me. Shew me wherefore thou contendest with me. I will say, in the Hebrew, is the word Amar. The commonest use of this verb is indirect conversation where the subject is God Genesis 1-3 the serpent in the Garden of Eden or, and Genesis 3-1 Adam is terrified he tries to hide from God Genesis 3-10 Balaam's ass in his attempt to divert the stubborn prophet Numbers 22-28 the war horse eager for battle according to Job 39-25 the sea disavows Wisdom's abode in it, Job 28.22. The trees of the forest are in search of a king, Judges 9.8. So it's readily seen that this verb is pressed into service in literal contexts, in personifications, in allegories, and strict narratives. And a variety of nouns and clauses and adverbs and prepositional phrases are employed after this verb. So even when synonymous verbs are used, you have uh, deber, tsawa, ana, shaba, nadar, among others, the verb amar here can be used in the infinitive form with the preposition lemor, to introduce the command or the oath or the promise, etc. So, and that's why Job 10.2 is so very important. In Job 22.28, now this is interesting, Eliphaz advises Job to find his delight and trust in God. And the God here is El Shaddai, the breasted mother. So that if he decides on a matter, 
it may be realized for him. And the reason, of course, that it's going to be realized is because the Heavenly Mother responds to his prayer, to his uh, entreatment. Job 8.5, If thou wouldst seek unto God betimes, and make thy supplication to the Almighty. Here again the Almighty is El Shaddai, the Divine-Breasted Mother. The Hebrew word for seek in this verse is shakar. And I've got a footnote here. And all but one of the 13 occurrences of shakar are in the peel verbal stem. The one rare exception is the call verbal stem participle of shakar in Proverbs 11.27. He that strives after good obtains favor. So, most often the object of the seeking is God. In Job's case, it was El Shaddai, right? So, it was mother in prayer. Job 8.5, Psalm 63.1, Psalm 78.34 is another one, Isaiah 26.9, Hosea 5.15. See, of these five passages, four state that one seeks earnestly the Lord in a moment of affliction. Job 8.5, Psalm 63.1, Psalm 78.34, Hosea 5.15, etc. In Isaiah 26.9, the worshiper simply affirms his intense desire for his fellowship with God. So again, this, this theme of the vertical communication is very strong in the Hebrew Bible. And the Divine Mother is not left out of that in any manner. Uh, the emphasis is in Job uh, more than some of the other books, but the Divine Mother is there also. The word supplication in Hebrew is the kanan, and this has connotations in regard to the idea of praying to the deity, whether that's the mother or the father, there are many forms of this word. Now the Greek Old Testament, again the LXX, this translates the verb with oiktairo, to pity or to have compassion. And isn't that a mother goddess uh, action, thinking type of attitude? And with eleo, it means to show mercy or sympathy. So that's very interesting. Or in the Hitpael stem again, with Theo is to supplicate once again. The merciful, compassionate communication vertically. Yeah. So the verb is used in a social or a secular context as well as theological contexts. It often has the sense of showing kindness to the poor and the needy. Other scriptures in Job indicate prayer is completely proper to the mother or where his eyes pour out tears to Eloah, to mom. Job 16.20 He also says he wants to speak to El Shaddai, the breasted divine mother. It is the wicked in Job 21.15 who ask, what's the point of praying to her? They can't figure that out. <laughs> right? Job 22, 26, and 27 says that when you pray to Shaddai, to mom, 
she will hear. That's nice, isn't it? And then Job, uh, lastly, Job 12.4. I've made this long enough, man. 12 Job 4, I am the one who calls on Eloah and expects an answer. So to sum up this whole thing, number one, the Divine Mother began from before the very beginning of the creation or of the physical universe, as she notes in Wisdom and Sirach in Proverbs. She is actually the co-creator with the Father as his wife. Boy, that light's bright. Oh, there we go. Yeah. That's making me glow and look too holy, isn't it? Number two, the Divine Mother is represented by Eve here on Earth, the mother of all living truly. Number three, the Divine Mother is the wife of the Divine Father, and together their son. That's the Holy Family. That's the Holy Trinity, originally. Pretty breathtaking, isn't it? Number four, the Divine Mother was worshipped as an integral part of ancient Israelite religion and was not an aberration or an apostate pagan belief at all. There is nothing pagan about her. Even though Israel's neighbors also had mother goddesses. That's true. They had the Divine Feminine in their religions also. Number five, the Divine Mother was not one of the many false gods in Israel, but was the true mother, and Isaiah 44 indicates that. Amazing! The most powerful part of Isaiah, the monotheistic PowerPoint, is about Mother. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. The Almighty, she is translated as that she is the Almighty. As per Isaiah 44, 8. That, that's amazing. Number six, the Divine Mother was known all the way up into Jesus' day. And some Christians claimed that Jesus taught it was her spirit that attended his baptism. Very interesting. Number seven, the Divine Mother is also found as wisdom and in the natural landscapes of the Tree of Life in Eden. Very interesting, yeah? Number eight, the Divine Mother is certainly in the Bible. You just have to read it in the Hebrew. Number nine, the God who is the true God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God worshipped throughout history until Israel apostatized and was destroyed and taken into exile, was in fact the Divine Mother. The Divine Mother can certainly be prayed to and answers will be given. Once one realizes that by studying the Hebrew of the Bible, there are literally dozens of scriptures, man. And I've, this is just touching it. This is just giving us the anchor, the bedrock, the beginning 
which teach this interesting and beautiful loving teaching. So there's the, uh, the divine mother Hebrew goddess Eloah. And I have a lot more material based on the, in the ancient Hebrew uh, Israelite religion that I can tie in with the, uh, oh, the archaeological and the linguistic and all that. And then, believe it or not, no joke, she really is in the New Testament as well. No joke. So if, if this subject has interested you, let me know in the comments. Uh, and I will be happy to produce more of these videos on the Divine Feminine, which I think is one of the really, truly great subjects, even though Mormonism lamely ignores her, or they say, oh, they don't want to harm her name. I mean, she is the goddess. She has the power of life and death. She's not going to be pansied around and insulted like daddy and all that. I mean, that's just, that's patriarchal noise to try to keep moms pressed. But the goddess has a way of always percolating up. So, I know one thing. I am not going to put her down into a second-rate category at all, because when I get back there, I'm going to get myself a hug and an ice cream cone from Mom. I'm not going to get my butt kicked like the boys down from Salt Lake are going to for suppressing her and trying to intimidate us into saying, no, it'll, it'll lead you astray if you pray to Mom. That's as stupid as saying it's going to lead you astray if you talk to your earthly mom and only are allowed to talk to Dad. I mean, that's just stupid. So I would say the same thing with the heavenly parents, kind and dear, and they will and do and can communicate patriarchy can stick it in the sand as far as I'm concerned. They haven't got a clue. So anyway, that is your Backyard Professor video on Mormonism on Heavenly Mother. Stay tuned, be good, do well, have fun, work hard, and please feel free to donate some. Every little bit helps, it truly does. We make a huge effort here at Mormon Discussions, Inc., and Radio Free Mormon, and Rami Umptum, and myself, the Backyard Professor, to bring you good quality information, and it does take time, and it does take effort, and we are more than happy to do so. We are enjoying ourselves doing it. And we want to keep doing it, so give us a hand if you would, and we will bring a lot more great topics to you. In the meantime, be good. And I will see you in the next Backyard Professor videos on Mormonism.